I'm Dr. Sharon Blackie, and I'd like to welcome you to my podcast, This Mythic Life. Like all of my work, this podcast is drawn from ancient but still bubbling wellsprings, from the old, forgotten pre-Christian mythologies and philosophies of the West. These traditions, from the magical stories of Celtic Ireland to the soul-centered myth-tellings of Plato in ancient Greece, are rich, complex, and beautiful. They offer up a world in which everything is not only alive, but has purpose and intentionality of its own. I believe that it's time to reclaim those old indigenous ways of being in the world and bring them back out into the world where they belong. Founded in authentic scholarship as well as the committed, embodied practice in the mythopoetic and creative arts, my work on the mythic imagination is above all about finding our way back into the mystic, about delving into the mysteries of wild psyche and finding a deep embodied sense of belongingness to this beautiful, animate earth. In this podcast, I offer you conversations with people who can sprinkle a few breadcrumbs to help us find our way back home through this dark forest of our forgetting. Hello everyone, so I am here this afternoon, this Friday afternoon in Wales with storyteller and writer Tom Hirons, who is talking to me from the heartlands of Devon. Now Tom was raised on the Suffolk-Norfolk border in East Anglia on the east side of England, lived in Scotland for almost 20 years and then gravitated to Dartmoor in the southwest of England where he still is, largely. Um, he's been storytelling publicly, I think, for over 15 years now and now teaches storytelling. I'm sure we'll come on to that in the course of the discussion. And Tom also is a writer. He's the co-founder of Hedge Spoken, a traveling off-grid storyteller, storytelling theatre run from a 1966 Bedford R.L. Lorry, which was converted to be a home and a go-anywhere stage by Tom and his partner, the wonderfully talented artist, musician, and puppeteer, Rima Staines, who I'm sure many of you will also know. Now, I first got to know Tom probably, oh gosh, I'm guessing about, uh, counting back, I think it probably about 12, 12 or so years ago when we were running, when my husband David and I were running a small independent literary publisher up in Scotland called Two Ravens Press. And Tom was working in a very wonderful and radical Edinburgh bookshop at the time. So we first met at that point and then somehow ended up meeting again. Um, and Tom and Rima visited us on the Isle of Lewis when we lived there from about 2010 for four years and did a very magical storytelling performance in our barn that evening. And I can't remember the story, Tom. What was it? I, Ivan, there was a, there was a Russian. It was, it was Ivashko Medvedko, little Ivan, their child. That was it. And um, if you're interested in um, a little bit more about that um, visit, you can read about it in The Enchanted Life, my book, where Tom and Rima are included on it. So, Tom, it's lovely. Um, it's about probably about eight years since we've seen each other's faces for real. So it's lovely to speak to you again. It's lovely to be here, Sharon. It has been a long, long, long time. Yeah, many, many things have passed under the water. For sure. And uh, hopefully we're going to have a chance to talk about some of them. And I guess, first off, we've got a lot that I'd love to talk about if we get the time to cover it all. But first of all, Hedge Spoken, because I think that probably is what really captured the imagination of so many people 
when you began that project and took us through that long process and wonderful process of converting that lorry, which looked so so unpromising when it first turned up, um, <laughs> and then it just turned no up faith. the most magical no thing. Faith. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, just to just to clarify, as I often have to um, when people say we converted it, um, we employed a friend the amazing Leo Singleton to do all the hard work while we stood around and go oh wouldn't it be lovely if we had another window up there and can you make it lift up there and maybe <laughs> you know fold out there and he would roll his eyes and then magically make it happen so he had all the practical skills for creating this uh, this stage and home on the back of that truck. And you, I, you actually lived in it for a little while with your first son didn't you? Yeah, we lived in it for about two years on the road. Um, and for those of you who don't know um, about Hedge Spoken, um, basically we we travelled in it, uh, telling tales wherever we went, Mo mostly in Devon, but also kind of the southwest of England generally, and over into Wales. Um, and we would tell stories at fairs and at festivals, but also wherever we were parked up because it's quite an extraordinary looking vehicle in the end and people would kind of gravitate towards it as kind of moths to this flame of something something extraordinary and different which they could sense uh, and so we would tell stories oh, I, I would tell stories and Rima would play music to really whoever came and that might be you know a few people in a field next to where we were parked or um, a woman and her small child, I remember sitting on the steps telling uh, the firebird to them in a forest just outside Exeter. Uh, so we were really living in this world of story um, for about two years, deeply embedded in this kind of stream, this ancient stream of itinerant storytellers coming into places with some kind of crackly feral magic of, of difference and otherness. Uh, and bring in some enchantment. And it was really a very strange and magical and powerful process. And as we see it now, really, we, in the process of dreaming Hedge Spoken and then raising the money and doing this big call out across the world and being supported by all these people, it feels like we, we really just opened a door or a portal, you know, um, into some other dimension that this magic could come through uh, this hedge spoken thing and our job really has been to tend that magic as best we can um, while it kind of thrashes us around and um, you know does its work with us which has not always been straightforward obviously as as magic as it always is and and what what, what has become of it, Tom? I mean, obviously, during COVID times, it's much more challenging to do that. But at the moment, you're kind of you're a bit more settled again and living and living in a house. Is, is Hedge Spoken still on the cards for the future as a traveling show? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a weird to say it's a weird year is the understatement of the century. Sure. Um, but. Uh, the truck is here in our drive. And so last year we took it out a few times. We did some shows locally. 
Um, we had uh, we were doing an um, amazing Arts Council funded show actually of a Lithuanian folktale uh, with puppets and masks and all that kind of stuff. So we would take the truck out a bit, uh, went as far as Somerset, but we've got two small children. One's uh, going to be six in February, and our youngest is, is two yesterday. And um, you know, living in a truck with one small child is one thing. Living in a truck with two small children is another thing, especially when you can only fit three of us in the cab. So, um, for one reason or another, it was it was good to be uh, in a house for the last couple of years. Um, and the truck is there in our drive as this constant reminder. You know, every time we approach the house, there's the head spoken truck. So our hearts are still, well, I'll speak for myself, my, my heart is still torn between life on, on the road. I'm doing imaginary quotes there um, because it's such a romantic and cliched thing, life on the road, um, and settled life. And the tension between those two things is something that still swirls around my heart constantly. Um, and every time I step into the truck, there's a, oh, but, this is what we're doing now. And so this year, while we've not been able to go out, uh, I've been running some workshops and a longer course, um, really, which is just me detailing in, in great length every single mistake I've ever made of storytelling, <laughs> um, of which there are many, 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 uh, and trying to, trying to pass on and a little bit of what I've learned, but really just empower and infuse people. Um, and make them believe that they can make those same mistakes themselves and nothing terrible will happen. So we've been doing that and we've also, we're working towards filming a few stories. We've got six stories, uh, which currently it's six, that we're planning to make short films of uh, to come out early next year. Um, but with a particular focus on the stories of uh, nomadic or traveling or migrant peoples. Um, so there's some Scottish traveler stories in there, there's some Romany stories in there. Uh, that sounds like a chop saw being used. I think, the, yeah, we have, a, we have a joiner in the kitchen who's doing arcane things to a dishwasher. So let's just see oh. if we can <laughs> carry on if we need to stop. <laughs> um, so yeah, films coming out next year, hopefully. Um, and touch wood if we can get back to doing some live performance then I'm, I'm missing storytelling hugely um, but the workshops have been really interesting and it's been interesting to do them in the context of not actually doing a lot of storytelling this year because uh, mm -hmm. it's made me really investigate what it is that I do and what's important to me and what is I've just been doing kind of lip service to um, and it's really it's simplified my storytelling actually quite a lot I think it's been a year for that, hasn't it? That that whole taking stock. I don't think I've spoken to anybody who hasn't in some way had to do that this year. And you got an Arts Council grant for that sto those storytelling workshops, didn't you? Which was well done for that. Uh, I think you got better at doing <laughs> grant applications yeah. uh, and all that kind of stuff that you have to do when you're trying to run a, a venture in the arts these days. Um, and that, that saved our skins really this year. Um, but yeah, so we were able to give some bursary places. Uh... So the other branch of Hedgespoken or the other kind of um, part of it is Hedgespoken Press, which is a beautiful um, little publishing venture that you and Rima have put together to produce lovely, lovely books 
based around, again, myth and story. So that is going strong, I guess, still. It is. It's actually, um, it's survived this year. And as well as the books, uh, Hedge Spoken Press um, puts out Rima's uh, incredible artwork as mm. well. Um, and we're, you know, we're still a very fledgling little press trying to figure out how to do it all um, without getting completely drowned in admin, which is always the challenge when you're doing anything interesting. Um, but yeah, we've been fortunate enough the last uh, a couple of years ago, we did this series of books called um, Seven Doors in an Unyielding Stone and managed to get uh, some very interesting people to contribute to that, like Martin Shaw and Jerry Griffiths and Sylvia Lindstedt and other folk, um, Terry Windling and Joe Ruby, as well as me and Rima, um, and Michaela Meadow. And, um, and we put out, it, that kind of started really when we were building the truck and we were um, choosing perks for this crowdfunding at Malarkey. And we knew that this poem, Sometimes a Wild God, that I wrote, uh years ago now um was popular and so we thought let's make a little book of that and we'd always thought it would be a really exciting thing to put out books and little pamphlets and so we started that learning curve and i did the layout for that book sitting in a freezing cold barn with no heating on Dartmoor while the truck was being built and Rima did the illustrations for it by head torch in the yurt while our first son was sleeping and somehow we managed to get this book together and that was the first book that came out of Hedge Spoken Press um, and that book and the other ones we've put out and Rima's work you know that all it all works together and that's that's how we make our living largely when we're not involved in in the hedge spoken storytelling stuff yeah and for anybody who hasn't visited hedge spoken press and, and looked at the books and um the prints you should i think i have most of your books or at least a good selection of them and i have a whole wall full of rima's artwork so um mm. it's both, both beautiful um productions the books and the prints now talking about um your writing um sometimes a wild god of course i think a lot of people will know it keeps popping up uh, it's one of those things that every time you turn on facebook or instagram or something somebody else has only just discovered it and it seems to have a bit of a life of its own but i saw something uh that you had written more recently i think it was on instagram uh just a few days ago and it was called i think listen to me and or it began with those words and I think you're going to be kind enough to read it for us and to tell us a little bit about your I will to that I will Sharon um it's actually um I hope this doesn't doesn't disappoint you it's a reworking of something I actually wrote quite a long time ago hmm. um which has been kind of languishing for a while and I've been itching to, to kind of put it out again and give it a little bit more of um Polish is the wrong word, but um, maybe uh, some um, some clean valves or something. Um, and it's, it's the original was is called the Scrimstone Circus Gospel, um, which came out in a book I can't remember how many years ago. Um, an interesting book, the way all the stories kind of overlapped at certain points, and this was the central story for it. Mm. Um, uh, but I shall 
not say too much about it, but I'll just read this opening bit. Um, actually, I just wrote the, the bit after that this morning, uh, um, standing in a field with my dictaphone, uh, not realizing that I was writing the second bit. Anyway, I'll shut up and read it. It goes like this. Listen to me. I wasn't born for birthday parties and clean handkerchiefs or scented candles in the bath. I didn't come here for your mother's approval at the dinner table, for string quartets on the lawn or a pat on the back and a cigar from your dear old dad. No. I was born for blood and feathers on the roadside, for sea shanties that end in knife fights and the smell of kerosene, a woman's hot breath by the harbour walls at dawn. I was made for bear claws on wet bark, for dustbin fires in the wasteland where desperate men in greasy overcoats swig vodka in the sparse snow and a cold so tight and empty you can barely see a flame in it. I was born for broken glass and sticky hands and imperfect love imperfectly made. For riding the rusty trains home in silence at dawn when the last ditch grail quest has failed. In my story, all the knights have spent their blood and wine on wrong questions asked in the wrong places and the bars are all closed and no one's singing now. Mine is the kingdom of the broken promise. Mine is the kingdom of love letters returned to sender. And mine is the everlasting light in the eyes of those who've been through every kind of hell and still come back for more because they like it here. So listen to me, child. Put down your embroidery. Come closer. I've got tails. Wow, All right, that that is it. That's wonderful. Um, and there's, it's a curious phenomenon, and I see it in, um, in a lot of what you do. And perhaps it's just knowing you a little bit better that I have a, a maybe a better sense of it or a stronger sense of it than most people. But you have this very dark perspective on the world apparently on the one hand and yet clearly there is such a deep love for it that you keep coming back for more um and i just wonder if you could say something about that aye, aye. we um i was doing a a um a thing with ian mckenzie of the mythic masculine mm -hmm. a couple of, couple of weeks ago now i think it was um and he he picked up on this as well there was a, a line i'd written somewhere about um I can't even remember how it goes, loving life, even though I've seen the kind of the inferno of the future or whatever it was. Um, and what can you say about that, really? Um, I am, ever since we've known each other, actually, certainly when we came up to Lewis, I remember ha having conversations kind of into the night with you and David about the state of the world and what to do, what can be done, what's the approach, and how to how to respond to, to these times. And it's fair to say that, you know, through being involved with the Dark Mountain project kind of way back then as well, 
uh, and then been involved a bit with Deep Green Resistance a little later on. Um, uh, I've I've been grieving a lot for a lot of years about you know this, the state of things, the state of our um, our so-called culture and uh, the ecosystem, the systems that we we live in, and. It was only a few years ago, it was just after our eldest was born, I was out fasting on Dartmoor, uh, which is something I do every so often and help other people do. Um, and I thought I kind of had my, um, my perspective on things. And um, it was late January, I think, and it was snowing and I was out there and I came back from that experience um, with a new, new understanding of hope, I suppose, um, which is a very long way of getting around to, to saying that my, I have a love for the world and a hope for it, which has kind of separated away from optimism. Because I think it's fair to say that out of all the people I know, I am the most fatalistic about our future um, and having young children that's that's a whole kettle of fish in itself but um, but I also um, have separated hope from from having optimism and I've understood or it seems to me that um, hope is more akin to love than optimism these days in, in me and so I I believe strongly that in the same way that love is essential for the, the human heart to, to kind of survive this world and without it, something kind of perishes and withers and we become ill either psychically or physically. Um, I think it's the same with hope for the human spirit. And, I'm, and again, just to, to say, I'm not talking about the hope, which is optimism. I'm talking about this, this quality of love for the world, which, um, you know, it was W.S. Merwin, I think, um, who said, who wrote, uh, uh, on the last day of the world, I would plant a tree. Mm-hmm. And that's got the same thing about it. And so it's kind of someone asked a question recently um, about kind of Buddhism and, and that kind of thing. So I, I used to be a Buddhist way back when, before I fell. And the, the notion of the Bodhisattva uh, if anyone's come across that, this this being who chooses not to go uh, into the kind of enlightened bliss, but stays back to help everyone else goes through, goes through, has the same kind of of hope in it. I think there's a yeah, it's a different different kind of hope. Um, I love life, and I could talk about this for hours and go deeper and deeper. So this is really just skimming the surface. But there's also a sense in which I um, I was very depressed. We would call it now, or we called it then. I'm not sure I would call it that now. Um, I was very distressed between the ages of about 12 and 22, pretty consistently. And there were several occasions when um, I was, you know, uh, a razor's width away from um, killing myself. Um, and several times and it was it was just you know the turbulence of my own mind and the lack of any framework to understand myself 
um, and the, the intensity of life um, were too much for me. But I, I had a very strong sense that I probably wouldn't live very long and I probably wouldn't make it to 30. Yeah. Um, and that was, that was quite clear. It was just one of those things that I accepted. And so when I got to 30, um, which seems like a very, very, very long time ago now, I, I remember thinking even then, I didn't die. That's amazing. That's incredible. And I could see this kind of, this whole other set of universes or possibilities where I did die. Uh, you know, it would have been so easy. It's so easy to die. Um, and, and I didn't. And it was like, oh my God, this is all, all from here on in, this is a gift now, mm-hmm. you know? So I'm, I'm here and that, that is a triumph. There's, there's some saying I remember reading, you know, to, to be alive is a triumph in itself. And that was kind of what carried me from my thirties up to where I am now. But also this sense of, ah, maybe, you know, maybe in some strange way, uh, and I'm talking subtly here, obviously, because I'm not utterly insane. Um, maybe I'm a ghost, you know, maybe I did die and I'm just, I'm already dead. And this is, what am I going to do? I'm still here. So I will be amazed. I want to be amazed by life. Uh, and I am constantly, you know, all this stuff around us, all these people, these just incredibly intense bundles of being, um, you know, encountering all these things and energies and, and wonders and terrors and um, appalling degradations of, of life as well. I'm, I'm here for the whole lot. And I suppose that's why perhaps I'm, I do write about the dark. I write, um, you know, I'm really into kind of plunging into the shadow and swimming in it um, uh, as much as I can, you know, my, my own shadow is still unconscious largely to me um but where i have uh unearthed it oh it's juicy and i want to i want to write about it i want to speak about it i want to um let other people know that it's okay to to kind of um uh, to write about that to make art about that to speak about that um you know it's um it's so rich and as a storyteller if all if stories were just light, mm. oh God, it would be dire. I, it yeah. would be awful. I've heard some of those stories. They're not worth listening to. Um, they're terrible, you know. And I'm not obsessed with the hero's journey and that kind of particular arc of um, underworld exploration. You know, that's just one of many. But all the juicy stories have have that grit and blood and the hardship of of life which is real and one of the things of uh coronavirus this year one of the things i i've really learned also through our own circumstances being difficult the last couple of years with rima's health and just trying to raise two small children in a utterly fucked up world um is that community comes together community is created community comes together through adversity you know, it doesn't come to, it doesn't get made through celebration. It gets kind of, it gets celebrated through celebration, but it gets made through adversity. And when people see you and experience each other in 
um, in extremis in the in the hardship of stuff, and so there's a power in the in the grit and muck which is beautiful. It's what makes things precious. Yeah, I think my I, I similarly have a very dark um, perspective on our future, to be honest. Um, but I think what a little bit different from what you're saying, but but not in not in its essence is the way that I found my way through it was actually going back to some very ancient Greek philosophy, um, particularly around Plato and Plotinus and um, others of that ilk who had this concept of calling, you know, the idea that every soul comes into this world with, with something to do or to be or some gift to offer the world, not necessarily to do anything radical or to be anything radical, but just some unique way of being, which in some mm. way contributes something necessary to the world, some mm. necessary part of what the world is, which you can never know what, you know, you can never know what it is. That's the beauty of it. You don't know what it is. You don't know necessarily whether you're doing it properly ever, but that sense that you have something that is necessary and as soon as I learned that and believed that it takes a while to come to believe these things you know in the context of your own life but I'm almost mm -hmm. 60 now so I've had some practice at it that sense that you all you can do then in the face of whatever shit comes at you from the world from other people whatever lack of hope or uh, whatever despair you feel all you can ever do in the face of all that is be that gift whatever it is you know, just, mm -hmm. just offer whatever it is that you came here to do or to be or to show or to reflect. Just keep on doing that. And absolutely, and this is the biggest lesson I learned of all, to let go of attachment to outcome. And that doesn't mean to say that you don't give a damn what happens. It's to say that you can't do anything about it. You know, you'll never know what it is. You'll never know how big an impact you've had on the world or not, or, you know, what, what, what it was necessary. But if you just carry on, doing what you alone can do uniquely, then I think that's probably right. And in spite of, or in the face of all of the difficulties piled upon, piled upon, piled on top of us this year or these past couple of years in so many ways, politically, ecologically, and what have you, that really, I, I can, I can tune it all out and focus in on that. Just do your stuff, just write your books, just you know, do your work, do your teaching, and that's all you can do. And it was mm. completely transformative once I actually mm -hmm. got that through my thick skull. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I um, I largely agree with that. Um, and you know, for for me, my my experience of kind of relating to the world in terms of what I can do and what I can't seems to be kind of cyclical. And I go round and round the wheel, sometimes, you know, intently focused on myself and um, the things just around me in a, a very immediate circle, particularly my family, obviously, but my community. Um, and other times I look at the world and I am, you know, smitten in the heart with the desperate need or urge, the, the drive to do something larger so that is that makes more of a change and all of that and i go round and round that circle and what i always come back to is very much the same um and it it's kind of it's made um a little bit kind of um poor by giving it bold speech i think but it, it's exactly as you say are you doing what you are here to do uh and 
if you are then good <laughs> you know i don't know who gives you a pat on the back but um you know good if you're not then get down to it because life is short and i think that if you are lucky you do get to not see the whole picture of what it hit is that you're here to do because it's far too multifaceted to be contained in one image or language um, but if you're lucky you'll get to see a face of it i think and that was certainly my experience when i um, did wilderness vigil work for the first time um, and i feel that i was lucky enough just to just to get a little taste of that kernel um, and go ah okay this is this is the thing and this is actually the thing not that anyone else has told me, but this is what I, I feel right deep in my marrow I'm here to do. Uh, I will navigate by that star. And, yeah. yeah. It, it, going back to the dark again, just for a minute. Oh, good. Um, it, <laughs> yeah, we both love the dark. But I wonder, um, is there a risk of kind of romanticizing the dark and the hard life? I mean, so in that, in your beautiful, beautiful piece of writing there, you know, you have your desperate men swigging vodka and, and something about that image takes me right back to my teens when I worked with alcoholics and with the homeless mm -hmm. for a long time. And it's just like, that wasn't pretty, you know? And you know, it's that's pretty. pretty. So I'm not accusing you of trying to say that it's pretty, but how do we keep that balance, you know, between, between wanting, between needing the hard, of life because it's a how we know we are we're alive it's b how we don't kill the planet how do we keep the balance between that and yet living without any active hardship and doing ourselves harm that's an easy question that's, for you it's, a, it's a good one sharon it's a good one that's not a christmas cracker one um i it's it's interesting there there are two angles i could go for on that um one is that you know the question is is your heart alive you know, because my experience of all of that kind of grit and um, the, that hardship is that if your heart is alive in it somehow, then it is not just degradation. Um, but, you know, I'm thinking in terms of, of living um, as a traveler on the road. Um, one of the my experiences of, of that and people that we encountered along the way is that you know living in a vehicle on the road in in britain is is a hard job uh, to do really well i think you know there's not a lot of space where you can be and you're welcome um yeah. and uh, certainly we were very lucky and not just by fortune but also by design because we had this beautiful vehicle so we got away with stuff that, that a lot of people wouldn't have um but you, you encounter the, the liminal world because you're living very much in the margins. And so whether it's people constantly trying to sell you generators when you've stopped in a lay-by or whether it's, um, you know, crossing over into that world, which is kind of, kind of yeah, industrial feral on the outskirts of cities um, and all of that, you know, it's that, that world is kind of strange and, and has has grit and hardship in it and one of the challenges of that life is to not become kind of leathery hearted and mm. thousand yard starey with it and your kidneys have shriveled up through constantly being adrenalized how do you how do you remain kind of supple and soft and open-hearted in in that world you know um 
kind of comes back to kind of Tao Te Ching stuff of you know just not becoming that that rigid thing that breaks easily. Um, I don't know. I don't know. I don't worship the the dark or romanticize it in any real way. I love you know I I love um, what is it I love. It it is okay. So I'm going to try and articulate it, and I don't know whether I whether I'll be able to. But um, so um, I lived in Greece for a a little while uh, back in 2004, something like that. And um, my partner then was a filmmaker, and she was making a film about Greek gypsy identity uh, in the year before the Greek Olympics. And in the area we lived in Athens, the um, the gypsies kind of lived in these kind of really kind of shanty town kind of structures mostly, and they were being bulldozed by the Greek government to make uh, everything look nicer for the tourists. They were poisoning the dogs as well while they were at it, um, which is a classy move. And so we ended up hanging out with um, a lot of uh, gypsies on the edge of Athens and over on the Isle of Evia where they have a big um, big get together and went to Greek um, gypsy weddings. And that life is mental and has a lot of that grit and the smell of kerosene and the um, fires in industrial estates and all of that. That's what it looks like. And so I'm fascinated by what goodness I felt between people in those circumstances where all the trappings that we think are kind of essential for, I don't know, for kind of civilized behavior towards one another were gone. Mm -hmm. But there was just this beautiful heart-centered being um, going on, not all the time, obviously, because, you know, we're talking about humans in all their, their multicolors, but that's why I think um, I, I write about that kind of um, that kind of world a bit as well, because to me, I want to undermine the notion that love and beauty don't exist there, mm-hmm. because that's just that's just stupid. Yeah. Uh, but we are we are like that because we think that you know uh, kindness and hospitality and generosity and those kind of things come about you know once you're up kind of a certain layer in the hierarchy of needs or something and my experience there and you know I'm yeah I lived fairly um, liminally in a number of ways for quite a few years and hitchhiked all over the country and ended up in all sorts of strange situations but my experience of the kindness of people who have no money and no trappings of uh, modern comfort you know, just really undermines all of that notion. Um, and so I think our our sense of, of, of the world is kind of upside down in that respect. I think you're right. So, I think stuff gets in the way in a sense. And I, I often find myself increasingly as I get older, and I don't think it's just kind of, you know, <laughs> automatic old age, looking back to my youth, kind of growing up um, in the, you know, in the midst of a an unusual kind of council estate, I suppose, you know, on the seashore in the northeast of England. And just thinking about the values of the people around me, they had nothing. Clearly they had nothing. Times were really, really hard then, you know, we're talking about the, the, the early sixties. And yet I remember the values 
um, and I can't even necessarily, again, say what they were, but there was just a sense of solidity, a sense of, mm-hmm. um, of people who were actually tied to some kind of stuff that mattered. And it was community based uh, with all of its flaws and all of its infighting and bickering and all of the rest of it. There was a sense that, you know, they just come out of the war. You know, my grandparents and um, my great aunt uh, who effectively brought me brought me up while my mother, mother was out at work. You know, they they had suffered they knew what extremity was they weren't going to let trivia um, mm. get on top of them and i think we gosh we've so much lost that sense now that i i absolutely i absolutely see it yeah mm. so the whole point of, about uh, i'm kind of curious about what as you know one of the things i love most to talk about and to write about is place and the various ways in which we're attached to place and i have ended up moving around a lot more than I'd anticipated certainly when we met in Lewis whenever that was 2012 Mm. or something I thought we were going to be there forever you know and I've been this is my third house since then um and second country um and it it's not a choice and it's not something that I do because I've got itchy feet it's just that there's something tugs at me there's a thread that's attached to me and something tugs and I go I follow it because I've always said that place has been my biggest teacher so I don't believe that, you know, rootedness in a place forever is the only way of developing proper relationships with place by any means. I always call myself a serial rooter. You know, wherever I go, I root very <laughs> deeply, but then mm-hmm. up I go. So um, I remember one of the things that struck me most when I was thinking about place is something that Rima, I think it was Rima said, that that attachment to place, that kind of sense of rootedness in place actually is there when you're traveling you know it's just you're rooted to whatever you open the door of your van onto every morning it's just it's the world still and so your sense of rootedness maybe has a a slightly bigger perspective but it's still just as deep and how was that for you in those kind of particularly intense traveling years that sense of place and belonging um oh it's a huge huge subject uh and i'm just trying to feel where to go in with that one um my experience of of place during those years of being on the road is is um one that's very different from my usual experience of place and whilst it's more vivid life is vivid when you're when you're living in a vehicle on the road uh that seems to be a common experience um you know because you're you're moving quite often and you you don't know what the day holds often you know you're not in the world of um, uh certainties you're living with uncertainty a lot so everything is very alive and i would say experience of of nature the natural world around me was equally vivid whilst I was on the road but you know and we weren't on the road for decades we're not um you know traveling people by heritage or culture we just we that's just what we did um for a few years and Rima had done it before in the truck um but my experience of place I think you know, is totally different from someone who has been born and brought up somewhere or who has moved somewhere and has spent many years there. Um, it is 
kind of vivid and alive in tremendously powerful ways but i don't think that the roots go as far down mm. that's my honest answer mm. um i don't think that you you get both yeah. in the same way it's um, it's a different way of belonging it does seem more yeah. kind of like you know stretchy out rather than digging deep and yet there is a beauty in that and things that you learn i've always thought you know whenever i've moved in my life um, looking back on it, a lot of it with the benefit of hindsight, but now I'm very conscious of it as I do it. It really is because the place, and I don't mean the people or what happens, I mean the place, literally the geology um, sometimes has something that I need to learn or reflect mm -hmm. some lesson um, mm -hmm. that I need to learn. And so I'm a great believer in following those threads. And then if I do that, then I would argue that, you know, maybe I get a deeper relationship with place because I let different places teach me than somebody who is rooted in one place all their life so I don't think there's there's any one way of doing it properly I mm -hmm. think it's just whatever we're drawn to but I suppose I find it very depressing when people talk about the big influences in their lives and you know don't go back to place and what 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 part place played in it what what is the place that you would say just out of curiosity has had most of an impact on you your biggest teacher Dartmoor. Oh. Dartmoor's huge in my um, in in my last kind of 10, 15 years. Um, Dartmoor has featured absolutely hugely. I'm utterly in love with it uh, in the same way that I I would be with a person or some mythological being. It's it's got some hugely powerful pull on me. And you know, when I when I met Rima, I had been living up in Scotland for the best part of 20 years. I'd moved down to Pembrokeshire, actually, um, and was preparing to put roots down there. And I thought I would never live in England again. I left England when I was 17, basically, um, because it's so suburban. Uh, and, you know, there are just far too many people. You can't walk anywhere without bumping into someone and having to say good morning, all that kind of thing. Um, and then I encountered Dartmoor when I met for the first time and uh it was like oh whoa this is something totally different uh this is a great huge shaggy beast that occasionally eats people right mm -hmm. down here in the kind of surrounded by the shire here is this strange strange thing i can live here um but i am um, i i really am a, a slave to dartmoor um, I have to get out there every so often or I go completely mad, really. Um, and so living here, kind of, you know, just outside Totnes, um, we're not on the moor and that's strange. Um, but I spend a lot of time there. I was out for a week there in September. Um, so, yeah, certainly that has had a powerful effect on me. And what, land, quali what quality of it? reflects you back with yourself um what is it what is it that's there i would i honestly can't say sharon mm. in in human language yeah better than i've tried to articulate in my writing mm -hmm. there's a place called merivale which um is on the south southish part of dartmoor um over over that way over to the west of it and um that's got something something going on there for me 
pulls me back there again and again to walk and to write and to speak while I'm there because I don't tend to write with a pen very much these days. I, I talk, um, which seems a better way of going about it in a landscape. And um, in one book that we put out called Falconer's Joy, uh, there's a poem called Merivale, which really expresses how I feel about the moor in a way which I, I can't really do any better mm. i'm just trying to think if there's a, any particular part of that no um but it's it's the granite and the moss and something ancient there um and beyond that i would just really be kind of plucking um kind of empty words out of the air for that one no, that makes sense, that the sense of the story is held so deeply for ages and ages and ages um, in those places too. And do you think you'll ever go back on the road again in quite the same way? I honestly don't know at the moment, Sharon. Um, everything up in the air. Everything is, I wouldn't say everything is up in the air, but life is complicated. Mm -hmm. And Would you like to, if it were? If um, it were or, or just... Uh, there's <laughs> a big question i'm sorry it's a huge <laughs> question about about the future and right now questions about the future i'm i don't know mm. i don't know i would you know with with two small children thinking about going on the road is is a very different proposition it sounds um, nightmarish to me i have to say well <laughs> yeah if, you know you need you need help and yeah. if you have help when you're going on the road, you need other people. And we, we've tried to do that once. We tried to set up a kind of traveling community and expand and take other, other vehicles and other people along with us. And we learned through some just crashingly hard lessons that that is a, a job that requires certain skills and experience. And that basically, if you're gonna start a circus, uh, there are reasons why it's a kind of family lineage um, that skills get passed down. It's a whole world in itself. We we messed up quite badly doing that, um, which I'm sad about. Um, so going on the road in a different form, I don't know. I think at the moment, for the next couple of years at least, we'll be quite happy if we can go back out every so often in the truck. Mm. Um, and go to places and do what we do and spread some magic I will be happy to do that for now and come back um, to some more stable base yeah I think so whether that's a house whether that's who knows mm. who knows and the the, the just briefly uh, briefly it's such a big question um, but we have been chatting here for a little while but I, I can't let you go without just a few thoughts on another subject very dear to my heart as you know most of my work um recently um certainly since we last met has been on on the question of, of reclaiming the lost feminine values mm. um in the world and women reclaiming their voices and reclaiming some of their old stories particularly our native stories which i think show such wonderful strong and inspiring women um for these times you know um I'm interested in, I know that you're also very interested in, in the kind of the mythic masculine um, and what needs to be reclaimed in terms of masculine energies to, to kind of match that. Can you just offer some, some of your recent thinking on that before we, before we wind up? I can, although the whole subject is so fraught um, that it's difficult to 
speak simply about it without mm. getting into some of the semantics. Tell um, me that. And yeah, but we'll have a go um, anyway, will we? We'll have, we'll have a go anyway. I I would also like to just come back a bit to what we were talking about earlier um, about settled peoples and traveling peoples, because I think there's there's a very interesting thing there that um, we could talk about that for hours. But I just want to say that, you know, as a storyteller, I'm very interested in people who move mm -hmm. because it, as far as I can tell, and I don't know if this is true because I'm not a scholar, it seems really that the traveling people of whatever kind are the people who take stories from one place to another yeah. and kind of move those stories and allow them to change and cross fertilize and meet with other stories and have parties and all that, that kind of thing. And so the fluidity of, um, of story in the context of settled people and traveling people is something maybe we can talk about that another time but i just wanted to just kind of bring that up yeah good and i don't know whether don't know whether it has any relevance to this this thing of the mythic masculine but what i'll say about the mythic masculine because you know we can talk for a long time about what what, what is the masculine <laughs> what, what do we actually mean by this you know and and before we know it we're we're you know it's dark and we're right down a rabbit hole there and we could talk about that, um, whether it's something intrinsic or whether it's a set of behaviors um, that are performed or, or whatever. I don't really want to go into that because it's no. not as interesting as some other stuff. So when I, um, when I was young, I <laughs> wrote this, um, this poem called Hermes Shadow, which um, this was back in 2008. So I was working in WordPower in Edinburgh, which was a wonderful bookshop, uh, but is no more, I believe now. Oh, that's very sad. Um, isn't I know, it? I know. I hope uh, Elaine and Tullidge have retired to France. Um, but anyway, uh, so I wrote this poem called Homie's Shadow because I was, I was interested in archetypes of masculinity or male archetypes that's, kind of, that's a simpler way of putting it and I was I was starting to look at the, the Greek pantheon of, of deities and so I started off with Hermes because he's really probably the most interesting of them all and also he's got a lot of trickster about him so I naturally am drawn to him um, because he occupies those kind of liminal spaces and is the, the kind of um, patron saint of them really in, in the, the Greek Greek thought um, and I wrote this poem called Homie's Shadow and it, it got picked up by um, by Terry Windling actually who I'd never heard of anyway and um, she uh, put it in the last issue of the Journal of Mythic Arts um, and that's how I met Rima and that's another story which I've told you <laughs> over the dinner table a long long time ago uh, well me and Rima have told you and um, that was just the start of a series of poems uh, and the next one was about Aries. It's called Aries Song, and it's probably the least popular poem I've ever written. I, I put it up on my blog, and um, everyone was really worried about me because I was I was writing in the voice of Aries, you know, kind of god of war, and um, you know, kind of all this uh, very 
uh, yang energy and everyone was like, I really think you need to see a therapist. Um, and it's like, you don't understand. Um, anyway, there was another one about Apollo, which was terrible. And then I decided that I should write about wild deity a bit. And that's how sometimes a wild god came into being. But I haven't finished exploring that pantheon, although I have less faith now than I did then that there was overall integral health in, in that pantheon. Um, but I am, I don't have a great deal to say these days about the mythic masculine in terms of the mythopoetic and all of that kind of stuff. Not, not any great illuminating statements. Um, you know, there's lots that's been said, lots that's been written. What I am more interested in, to be honest, is the state of men mm -hmm. and the, the terrible state that we're in, by and large. Um, you know, and observing a lot of women I know and a lot of women, you know, I, I see out on the, the internet and so on, doing amazing work of kind of excavating where their power has been taken away and reclaiming that power and defining themselves in ways that they want to be defined and so on. I see that and I look at men I know and the men I see out in the world and I'm like, fucking hell, we are just still so lost you know and our our predicament is um is difficult it's perilous it's painful um but we we are not yet by and large finding the tools to to navigate and kind of come together and and do the work we need to do to to make ourselves well um, There's lots more know. going on, isn't there, in that respect? I mean, you see more and more men aware of that and and looking for for paths to to to, to help. It it is picking up, I think, but you know, by and large, we're still at the stage of angry shouting in yurts. Um, <laughs> you know. There's, there is stuff going on. I mean, the Mythic Masculine Network, which I'm involved yeah. in, um, in Mackenzie's thing, um, yeah. you know, there's extraordinary men in there doing wonderful things. But I'm well aware that's a tiny, tiny, very, very kind of slim minority of people, of men. Um, and so what I'm interested in, in particularly at the moment, is what can I do what can I do to to help this situation and it's what I think it's one of those things where I've been always had a kind of thinking that maybe when I was old and wise I would have something to offer and just recently I'm coming around one of those corners again where you look at stuff that's possible for you to do and you realize oh you can't actually afford to wait until you're comfortable with this to do this work um, so I'm thinking about um, putting together some uh, some kind of circles really for, for people to join in with for men to join in with um, cool in really, the meantime, you have two you have two little animals to grow into men well exactly and this is you know probably the most powerful driver of that is yeah. that I want my boys to have tools to understand themselves 
certainly better than I did and certainly better than I see most most men having um, and to to grow up you know feeling comfortable in themselves and you know with them with themselves in the world and part of my job you know is well, a huge part of my job is is to try and do my best to model that for them you know which I'm onto an absolute loser with they're going to be much much more um whole and evolved than I am but um you know it's a powerful incentive you know and constantly looking at how they behave and it's like ah they are copying me and I'm being an asshole damn um you know that doesn't it doesn't get much more kind of hammer blow to your heart than that um you know uh you know I'm not an asshole all the time (laughs) I'm delighted to hear it (laughs) (laughs) social services do not need to get involved but um but you know it's like okay you really have you, you know the powerful incentive to up your game as a human being mm. that children having children gives you is is wonderful and terrible um it's excruciating because you, you see you know you see yourself mirrored um you know very bluntly and also absolutely amazing because what what more powerful um incentive to, to be more whole and better in the world Indeed. Well, what wonderful and terrible sounds like a really good place to stop. Uh, we, <laughs> <laughs> we've been rabbiting on uh, for quite some time now, but before we do, and thank you so much. It's been a lovely conversation. I remember oh, likewise. I remember the ones we had in the flesh and one day we'll do that again when the world has sure. turned a little bit more. And um, you have a little story as a treat to end with, I think. Would you like to, to go a on? A tiny, tiny little story. Tiny so, little story. Yeah. Thank you for um Thank you for this conversation. Um, it's been lovely to speak with you and a real honor to just, I'm, I'm starting to understand that, that these conversations that we occasionally have with, with people over the internet, they're, they're such an opportunity to, um, to keep on dropping deeper yeah. and deeper if we can. You know? yeah. um, and whilst I'm not yet super skilled at that at all it's just amazing to be given that opportunity so thank you for having me on Sharon um but the the stories I tell generally tend to be about an hour and a half long um (laughs) which really makes for great fun for (laughs) participating in in events online um because I just I don't have any short stories but I do have one short story which um I'll share with you now and it's a Sami story um from up there in Scandinavia and it has certain familiar themes some listeners may recognize and there's just something about it I love and so there's this old man and his wife live in a little ramshackle tent come hut um, I'm imagining skins over kind of bent bits of wood not far from the sea they live and they're very poor and life is really pretty rubbish for them and the old woman's out one day and the old man is left in the hut and when she comes back that afternoon the old man has got a smile on his face and he's looking very pleased with himself he's done something and she looks at him and she says old man what 
how are you up to i've seen this look on your face before and nothing good ever comes of it what have you done and the old man says no 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 listen listen you're going to love this this is going to change our life it's a really good thing has happened because i have made a man out of clay to help us in the hut to do all the chores and you know it'll be like having someone else we can chat with him uh it'll be great and the old woman says oh man what have you done this clay man will he will eat us you know that don't you and the old man says no 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 but sure enough at that moment from over the other side of the hut they hear this kind of slurping of wet clay as this clay man gets up and starts to move towards them licking his lips this uh this terrible clay being and he eats them both up there and then old man oh, nom, 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 nom. old woman nom, 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 nom. and rubbing his big clay belly he goes out of the hut and looks around him slop 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 off he goes down the path and he finds two young women uh one with a, a kind of yoke carrying buckets uh, on her shoulders and the other's got like, just a bucket of water and they see him and they start to run away but they're too slow and he eats them as well yum 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 one young woman yum 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 another young woman and the buckets and the yolk um, num, 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 num. and he rubs his belly and he carries on and uh, then he comes to the edge of a forest and he meets three old women there and they're picking berries they've got baskets full of berries and they jump up when they see him coming um, imagining his arms stretched out classic style and their baskets of berries fall over and they run off into the woods but he chases them and one old woman two old women three old women um, 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 goes back eats the baskets and the berries and off he goes still rubbing his belly and he comes to the edge of the sea and there's some fishermen there mending their boats uh, and their nets and of course uh, they see him and throw their hands up in horror and he eats them as well num, 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 num. and their boats and their nets and he rubs his belly and he's still hungry and he carries on for a little bit until he comes to a hill and there at the top of the hill there's a reindeer and the clay man says to the reindeer i'm gonna eat you up and the reindeer looks down and says oh you're gonna eat me up are you well i tell you what if you're gonna eat me up then i may as well accept my fate and so uh, tell you what you wait down there and i'll run down the hill open your mouth as wide as you can and i'll jump into your mouth save you the trouble of coming up the hill it looks quite it's quite steep and so the clay man says oh that sounds lovely i'll open my mouth and you jump in and so he stands there his huge mouth opens up and his bottom of his jaw is on the ground and the reindeer stamps the ground stamps the ground stamps the ground charges down the hill but the clay man in the belly as hard as he can with his antlers and the clay man shatters into a thousand pieces and out of his belly jumps three fishermen with their boats and nets three old women with their berries and their baskets the two young women with the water and the old man and the old woman and they all dust themselves off and thank the reindeer and they all make their way back to the, the village they all came from and everyone in the village is so happy that all these people have not actually perished in the belly of this clay man that they go into their houses and they fetch gold and they gild the antlers 
of this reindeer. And forever after that reindeer is known as the golden antlered reindeer. Yeah. And the golden antlered reindeer appears in many other stories and parts of the mythology in Sami life. Uh, and I, I love that story because it's, um, it's I, I just love clay men devouring people. But it reminds me of certain other stories that I, I heard from my youth. But it also reminds me of a little legend that I want to share with you just to finish on. Because this is a Sami story as well. It's, it's not really a story. It's just a little snippet. But in the Sami cosmology, uh, there is a giant hammer-wielding thunder god who controls the storms and holds a rainbow in one hand and a lightning-throwing bow in the other. He's called Diermes, or some pronunciation similar to that. And he chases a fabulous golden antlered reindeer across the sky. Yeah, that's what he does. Same as in kind of Norse myth, you have the... Um, the sun being constantly chased, I think it's by a wolf in the last one. Um, so this reindeer has been chased across this sky by, sky by this character, Diermes. And Diermes is shooting these lightning arrows at the reindeer. And he will eventually reach the reindeer. And he has already hit it with his first arrow right now. And when he has hit with his first arrow, that causes the world the world to suffer widening deserts, barren oceans, and lack of rain. The second arrow will begin to boil the mountains and melt the ice caps. And when Diermes finally gets close enough to stab this reindeer called Miandas Piri, the sun and moon will go out and the world will come to an end. Wonderful. That was a very fine note on which to end. And you only really like the story because you can do all those silly sounds of gobbling up. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> very, very fine. Tom, thank you very much. This has gone on much longer than I thought, but I've enjoyed it so much. And oh. I'm going to share your website uh, details, all of them on uh, my podcast page. But for those who are listening via iTunes or something, could you just begin by pointing them to your personal website where you have links sure. to all of the Hedge Spoken stuff? Yeah, if you go to tomhirons.com, uh, you'll find everything there. If you go to hedgespoken.org, you'll also find everything there. Um, you'll find your way around. There's lots to explore. There's films and poems and recordings and all kinds of stuff everywhere um, and lots of books to enjoy as well. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Tom. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Sharon. It's been fantastic. Thank you all for listening to This Mythic Life. And a reminder that if you enjoyed it, you can browse other ways of exploring and cultivating the mythic imagination at my website, sharonblackie.net, on the Work With Me page. These public podcasts are developed, produced and brought to you thanks to the generosity of my Patreon supporters. So if you're able to support this work, and you can do so from as little as $1 a month, please do head over to patreon.com and search for Sharon Blackie, or you can find a link on my website's podcast page. So this is me, Sharon Blackie, signing off for now. Thank you for listening, and I hope you'll join me again next time.